On February 14, 2017, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a talk with Richard Schrager, Per Bowen Professor of Law, and Joseph C. Carter, Jr., Research Professor of Law at the University of Virginia School of Law. The talk was titled City Power, Urban Governance in a Global Age. The discussion was moderated by Quentin Maine, Associate Professor of Public Policy at HKS. Great. Can everybody hear me okay? Great. Uh, so I'm, I'm Quentin Maine. I'm an Associate Professor here at the Kennedy School, and I'm really happy to have uh, uh, Rich Schrager with us today to present on his new book, uh, Rich is the Per Bowen Professor uh, at the University of Virginia School of Law. Uh, his research lies at the intersection of constitutional law and local government law, uh, with a focus on the ways in which uh, federalism, state and national urban policy, economics and city politics co-mingle and clash in the United States to affect local policy outcomes. Uh, in particular, Rich's work stands out for me personally because of the ways in which he has helped many of us better understand the progressive promise of cities, uh, specifically how the commingling and the clashing that I talked about before of federalism, state politics, economics, and city politics come together to create opportunities, but actually, and more often than not, significant obstacles for progressive political action at the local level in the United States. Rich's new book, uh, City Power, Urban Governance in a Global Age, was published just a few months back by Oxford University Press, and it's on exactly this topic of the commingling and clashing of those various uh, forces. And I was delighted that he accepted uh, my invitation to come talk to us today uh, about his new book. I've been reading uh, Rich's work for a number of years now and really have found it a wonderful resource and a source of stimulation for thinking about my own work and thinking through the parallels and contrasts between systems of local government here in the US, the rich uh, studies and then systems of local government in Europe, which I uh, mainly work on. In particular, Rich's work is refreshingly atypical because of the ways in which it helps us think about what I call empowered local government in my own work, namely systems of local government where mayors and councillors have the fiscal and the political capacity to address the welfare needs and well-being of their citizens. More often than not, the conversation around cities and decentralization, uh, especially in the US, but also in Europe, has focused on the issue of autonomy, and especially formal or, or legal autonomy. But Rich's work underscores the sad reality that more often than not, American cities are actually undermined and literally and metaphorically impoverished by their so-called legal autonomy and related to this, how state and federal politics also heavily constrains the ways in which cities can actually act to realize the progressive potential of their formal autonomy. Rich's work reminds us of the need to become more interested in figuring out how to achieve systems of local government where cities are practically empowered rather than formally autonomous. For legal autonomy without actual capacity ends up being not very useful to meet the needs and wants of ordinary citizens and especially disadvantaged groups. Uh, we are living through a period of renewed interest in cities, as testified by the turnout, I think, and there really is tremendous excitement in some quarters about the potential and the progressive potential of cities to do good and generate 
equitable, sustainable gains. This excitement, I suspect, is only going to grow in the coming years under the Trump presidency, so Rich's book really could not be more timely. Why? Because it provides a roadmap of exactly the types of legal and political obstacles, as well as the legal and political opportunities that lie ahead for American cities in the coming years. So I hope you join me in welcoming Rich today. Thank you. Can, can you hear me? Oh. So um, I, I, I wrote this book, and, and uh, the title of the, over the last many, many years I've been working on these issues. Um, um, I'm trained as an attorney, uh, as a lawyer, um, and so I think a lot about power and the distribution of power between the state, the locality, and the, and the federal government. Um, City power uh, did not anticipate the rise of Trumpism. It, there's some comment uh, about Donald Trump in the book, but it refers to him as a real estate magnet. It doesn't, doesn't describe it quite accurately because this was published before the election. But it turns out to have been slightly prescient in, in that way. Uh, um, so I, I want to just talk briefly about um, city power and Trumpism uh, first. Um, uh, and then why cities, why U.S. cities are weak politically uh, uh, and economically in many ways despite uh, the last 25 years of urban resurgence, which uh, has been real. Um, I'll talk about some examples. I'll talk about Flint, Michigan briefly, uh, 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 the Charlotte, uh, uh, North Carolina, and then I will talk a little bit about sanctuary cities um, to, to bring us back to Trump. And then some, some directions to go in. And then I, I'd just love to hear your questions uh, uh, along any of these lines. So the first thing to say is that I think that uh, Trump's election illustrated, that, as you've all seen, this enormous divide between urban and rural, which we knew something about, but I don't think we had anticipated the scale of the divide. We had already seen maps, you've seen these political maps of the Obama elections, um, where the blue is very little dots in a sea of red. And uh, if you look at the trajectory over the last 20 years, that has just increased. That is, there was much more blue kind of reaching out from those metropolitan areas. The election, uh, the 2016 election shows very isolated blue dots in metropolitan areas, despite the fact that Clinton wins the popular vote. So the vast majority of votes are there. They're just distributed in a, in a quite uh, uh, limited way. Um, they are distributed in cities uh, and in metropolitan areas. And so that divide is a, is a significant one, and it reflects a deep split between what you might call cosmopolitans and traditionalists. Uh, and maybe that's too simple, but I think there's some, some truth to that. It's ironic that Donald Trump, who grew up in New York City, made his wealth in New York City real estate and other cities' real estate, ran the most anti-urban campaign uh, in, in maybe the history of, of the, the Republican Party, which has always been somewhat anti-urban, at least in, in its more recent iteration. Um, there's also an iron, ir, irony in that the urban resurgence of the last 25 years, that is the, the resurgence of cities, is in, in many ways a cause of this deep disconnect. That is, as wealth has flowed back into cities, as cities have become more productive places, 
the places that are not major cities or major, major metropolitan regions or growing regions have declined, and that decline exhibit itself in, in some of this dissatisfaction, certainly, uh, this populist reaction. Um, and so we have this, this divide that, in part, is a, a caused by the fact that cities are doing better. Uh, and I think we'll see that continue, and that def divide will continue. This is a reality of uneven economic development. The problems on, uh, of uneven economic development are exacerbated, obviously, by gerrymandering within, within states, but also by the, the electoral college, by the, the malapportionment of the Senate. And that all generates this, this disparate geo uh, political geography that we saw in the, in the Trump election. Um, so again, I didn't write this book with that, this in mind, although, uh, uh, and the book is called City Power, but in lots of ways, the book is about American city weakness. Uh, and I want to say a little bit about that. Um, despite the urban resurgence, despite economic uh, energy that is now coming out of cities, that is generating the massive wealth in cities, that's generating innovation and new ideas. Um, um, and despite the fact that mayors have, with often because the federal government was out of the picture because of the inability to get anything done in Washington, uh, the fact that mayors have taken the lead in, um, in lots of areas, social policy, minimum wage, uh, anti-discrimination law, despite all those things, cities are in the United States quite structurally weak um, and the book describes this weakness, and, um, and I'll say a little bit about it and then talk about some examples. Um, we are notoriously bad, not just at building cities in the United States, which I think we have been bad at, frankly, but we're also bad at giving power to cities. We just do not trust them, um, and there are a number of reasons for this. Um, so let me talk about why, why cities seem to be weak in the United States give some examples and then, then maybe what can be done about it. So the, f the, f the first reason for the weakness I talk about in the book is the ideology of market primacy. And this is the idea that um, the private sector, private sector investment and global finance, that cities are dependent on those things and that what cities need to do is chase mobile capital around the globe by seeking to at attract and retain it. And that might be human capital, it might be finance capital. Um, this is arguments that, that cities need to attract the creative class or needs to, to attract the tech sector or any of these things. And what that does is puts cities um, in a subordinate position to mobile capital, global mobile capital. Um, and it has some effects. One effect, for example, if you look at the subprime crisis, the foreclosure crisis, which some cities tried to regulate and were not allowed to because the regulation had to come from the federal government, um, uh, those foreclosures have had dramatic effects on, on many cities. Um, Miami has brought a lawsuit uh, that will probably, uh, whether they have standing to bring that lawsuit on behalf of the city because of the the reverse redlining that occurred there by large finance, financial uh, organizations, banks. The other thing that this does is leads to the subsidization of mobile capital, either through just direct subsidies to large corporations or subsidies to folks who we think are attractive to the city 
instead of spending money on the people in the city, we spend money on an imagined community that's outside the city that will make the city better. The other part of market primacy, which I think is important, is that we actually conceive of cities as competing among themselves. It's not just that cities are competing for capital, it's that, they're compete, that they are, in fact, a product that is created. We treat them like businesses when they're not businesses. We treat them like businesses that can improve their product, and we give them a certain amount of agency. But the agency is towards one direction, which, again, is attracting and retaining assets of a certain kind. And this creates a, a notion that cities are in competition with other cities and other local governments. And to win this competition, you must be better, faster, stronger. And often better, faster, stronger means business friendly and low regulation. And if you fail as a city, we often think, well, that's just your own fault. And there's a kind of blame the victim mentality. Even though we know when we think about it a little bit more abstractly that there are large structural issues that have effects on cities all the time. And yet there is this idea that city agency uh, is to blame for the cause of city distress. So that's market primacy. The second reason cities are weak is state-based state federalism in the United States. We have this regional tier of government. They're called states. I hate states. You should too. This is why. One. They intervene selectively, and Quinton was talking about this a little bit, um, uh, which is there's, there, there's cities often have formal autonomy. They have a certain kind of formal autonomy, which allows states to intervene um, but not take responsibility for the underlying economic conditions that caused any, any of the particular problems in the first place. We see that often, and I call it selective localism. You could call it other things. Part of this is that we have a fairly rigid division of authority between the local, state, and the federal, but that doesn't prevent interventions by the state in particular. Feds, a little more so, and we can talk about that. Um, the other thing is that there's political redundancy in the federal system, so there's, there's lots of people who represent local people, but they're not representing cities qua cities. So your representatives in Congress represent local people, but it's a local congressional district. Your representatives in the state legislature represent local people, but it's a legislative district. And that doesn't coincide necessarily with the city or with the interests of the city qua city. Because we don't think of cities as political entities on their own. We think of them as jurisdictional entities. We think of them as agencies of the state in many cases, even when they have some home rule powers. And we don't worry about them uh, as cities, as representing themselves. And so if you, when you think about cities suing, for example, Miami suing the banks for these foreclosures, we have to actually, courts have to make a leap to figure out that, oh, the city actually represents these people. Um, and that shouldn't be a leap, but it is, because we think of cities as, as these jurisdictional entities. So states are terrible for cities. Uh, and state-based federalism as practiced in the United States is, is, is bad for decentralization. If you want decentralized power, I argue in this book, you want power to cities, not to states. If we could get rid of states tomorrow, I would back that as a constitutional amendment. It's not going to happen. All right, some examples really quickly. Just and you, will, you will be familiar with these. So uh, Flint, Michigan right, is a nice example of how economic decline is treated as a kind of 
internal problem. Flint just didn't adapt or was too corrupt. Um, there are other reasons for Flint's, Flint's decline, just like all kinds of industrial cities who, who, who depended on the automobile industry. Certainly that's the case. But a lot of the blame is on mismanagement or corruption in these places. And states don't intervene until very late in the process. So Flint is allowed to decline until very late in the process. And then uh, we all know the Flint story, which is the emergency manager takes over, tries to cut costs, shifts the water supply from, from buying water from Detroit to a different source, I forget which river, the Detroit River maybe, um, and the, the water is poisoned. It's full of lead and a whole municipal water system is, is poisoned. There are two, the people were upset about the poisoning of the water. What they weren't upset about, and I think they should have been, was the takeover of a city of, of thousands of people by an unelected un, un, un um, uh, manager appointed by the state, which happened also in Detroit. And there are people in those cities who resisted this. But the United States as a whole, the citizens of the country, we just sort of collectively shrugged and said, well, this is probably the best thing for them. Obviously, they're a mess, so they should be taken over by an unelected uh, manager. Um, there is no local right to self-rule. There's no constitutional or state constitutional right to self-rule. Maybe there should be. And this is a nice, Flint, again, is a nice, example of selective localism. You come in at the tail end, and then uh, uh, we had some, uh, obviously, an outcome that's quite, quite bad. A second example is Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte passes a transgender bathroom bill that allows transgender people to use the bathroom of their, uh, uh, of their um, gender identity. Uh, North Carolina comes back and says, no, 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 you can't do this and passes a law to, to require bathrooms to, this is called the bathroom bill, you may have heard of it, uh, requires uh, uh, localities and institutions in the state, including local governments and schools, to, to only allow bathrooms by biological uh, gender. But they don't just do that. Attached to this bill are a whole bunch of uh, exclusions uh, preemptions of state of local laws, so they preempt Charlotte's transgender law or statute. They say you can't do that, and then they say you also can't pass a minimum wage. You also can't put in your contracting requirements any kinds of employment or living wage requirements. You can't adopt public accommodations laws except the ones we tell you you can adopt. Right? A whole series of preemptive legislation. And this is because North Carolina looked out at Charlotte and other cities in North Carolina and said, you guys are doing stuff we don't like, and we're going to uh, go after you from the beginning. We're going to get rid of all this stuff and set a floor. Um, that kind of preemptive legislation is increasingly the norm. They've been very aggressive. States have been very aggressive at adopting such legislation. New York City adopted, attempted to adopt a plastic bag ban in the city. The state legislature preempted that, said, no, you can't do that. Uh, that's a, sort of a minor example. There are other examples. Florida is considering a preemption ban that would say local, localities can't regulate businesses of any kind. Any kind of business regulation is, is, is restricted to the state. Um, it is woefully easy 
for states to preempt city legislation, and they're increasingly do it because what they've seen is that cities have, have been more aggressive in their social and economic policy. And the gap between red state legislatures and blue cities has increased. And so the preferences are quite different. Uh, so we see a, a, a lot of preemption, and we see super preemption statutes that just say, anything you do, we don't want you to do. Business regulation, you can't do it. Or if you do it, we're going to take away all your money, which is a conditional spending kind of preemption restriction, which is now becoming popular too. This turns us to sanctuary cities. Uh, obviously, there's, there's this, the, the uh, Trump issued an executive order that said we're going to uh, withdraw funds, withhold funds from sanctuary cities. Those cities, sanctuary cities is hard to define. It's a range of policies that cities might undertake, uh, mostly involving policing, but might involve access to social welfare services or uh, local identi uh, identity cards. Um, there are, there is federal law, constitutional law, that limits the ability for the federal government to condition spending on local officials doing what they want. And the way that law works is it says you can't commandeer a local official, and that, in, that includes state officials and local officials, you can't commandeer them to do federal things. You can't turn them into uh, folks that will, that will enforce the federal immigration laws. And you can condition your spending on locals doing some federal things, but only if you don't condition it too much. So if you threaten withholding a lot of money, that's going to be unconstitutional. If you threaten to withhold just a little money, that might be okay. So, uh, so uh, President Trump's executive order is probably unconstitutional in its widest reach. It might be constitutional in its, narrow, in its more narrow reach. But here's the thing. Even if the uh, even if the federal government can't condition their spending on localities agreeing to do what they want, states often can. And so we've seen this in Texas, where Texas has said to Austin or the county around Austin, uh, if you're a sanctuary city, we will withhold our state funds from you. And there's no constitutional, federal constitutional restriction on that. So states can do the conditional spending and limit cities' abilities even if the federal government cannot. So all of this combines to a situation in which we have federal power being asserted against local outliers. Those outliers are cities, in, in the most, for the most part, engaged in certain kinds of progressive legislation. Those cities are often in red states, that is, and state legislatures are not looking too kindly on, on city power either. And so while cities are, in my estimation, a locus for economic regulation, a good place to do lots of kinds of legislation uh, that will uh, address things like inequality and injustice, they are quite restrained in the United States because of this, the structure of federalism and the way we think about cities as competitors in the economic sphere. So... Uh, the question is, what do you do about this? You're stuck with federalism. Uh, you're not going to be able to avoid that. And so I think there are a couple of things. One is cities need to stop competing, and they need to start organizing qua cities. 
not just as individual jurisdictions that represent their interests, but um, as a political interest group that can define its own uh, interest and mission. And that means mayors have to become more national figures on the political scene. Their fates, city fates, are going to be decided not by the cities themselves, but by state legislators and by the federal government, uh, Congress, and the president. And you have to exercise political power in those places in order to uh, preserve your own uh, political power locally. Second, as cities continue to resurge and, have and be able to exercise some economic power, um, they can also exercise political power, at least to some degree. And we saw this in the North Carolina governor's race. So the governor did lose that race in part because of the transgender ban. Um, and that was because lots of voters came out in urban places. Um, that didn't change the North Carolina legislature, but it did change the governorship. And that matters. Uh, uh, often cities have to align with corporate partners to do this. That's uh, uh, we might be ambivalent about that, but that may be where the power lies. And then third, I think you have to welcome and maybe foster urban-based political movements. Um, the, the women's march that occurred after the inauguration a couple weeks ago, it, it was notable because it happened in cities. 50,000 people in San Francisco, 100,000 people in Chicago, whatever it was. And those folks gathered in public places in, in, in city centers. And those places are important places to express dissent, dissatisfaction, resistance. Um, they can be more closely identified as urban-based political movements, however. We've identified them as just movements, but they are urban-based political movements. One might as well embrace the, the rural-urban division because it's real and it exists. Um, that's not to say that you shouldn't reach out to folks in rural or small-town America. That's quite important as a political matter. But it's also the case that uh, it is increasingly clear that urban places, that cities have independent interests that uh, uh, we should identify as city interests as opposed to just interest group interests of, an, of a different kind. Um, and finally, what I would say is this divide is just going to deepen as as we see uh, economies continue to revolve around urban places. And I don't see an end to this. Uh, I just see an acceleration of this. One uh, way to think about that economic trend is to think how can we create self-reliant economies in both big places and small places, big cities and metropolitan areas, and post-industrial Rust Belt places, too. How do we create those kinds of economies? And it's not at all clear to me that the cosmopolitan global approach is the right approach. A certain kind of populist approach is, is obviously one that is also available. And I think you can do a progressive decentralist populism of a certain kind that's based in cities that talks about self-sufficient economies, um, and, and that's okay to talk in that register. And in fact, it may be quite effective as a political matter. Um, so that's great. I Thank hope you. that's helpful. Um, I thought I'd start with a question and then open it up. Uh, the question I had was really probably on the last point, which is 
what would it look like to for cities to organize qua cities but to uh, advocate or engage a certain amount of fiscal redistribution from the urban haves to the urban have-nots and the rural have-nots so rather than organizing and being advocating for their own position but rather within them recognizing the diversity or taking on a larger public interest which is a lot of the growth is coming from certain parts of the country yeah, and yeah. what would it mean to redistribute from us out to places that are being left behind by economic restructuring yeah so I, you know I think the organizing is tricky I think um, again as I said I think you can start to self identify as city interested not just we are a city and we believe in immigration because that's one of the lifebloods of the of urban economy um, and so we coalesce around that issue it should be we coalesce around our status as cities uh, and you would need no, new organizations and new uh, because the existing ones are not really um, effective National League of Cities US Conference of Mayors are not particularly effective organizations for that purpose um, I think you're seeing some of that with the mayors and over particular issues like sanctuary cities. As far as redistribution out, I, 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 that is already exactly what is happening, right? The, if you look at uh, maps of economic activity, the world is not flat. The economic activity occurs in these metropolitan areas uh, at great rates, and then there's no economic activity out here. So there's already a tremendous amount of redistribution out. The problem is that there's this, there's a sense that it's going in the other direction, <laughs> that the, the politics of this are such that what we see is people saying, we don't want to give our money to those and fill in your, 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 the, the group. And those often are thought of as urban poor, that that's where all the, all the resources are going to. But lots of these resources are going to rural poor, and not to black people, but to white people. And so... We have a conception that it's going the reverse, and yet uh, the outflows are, are, are in that direction, from the coasts inward, for example. Um, now, how do you get the cities to, to uh, collectively think about their responsibility? I think uh, first you've got to give them some autonomy. <laughs> it's a little unfair to demand responsibility without a little bit of autonomy for them. So I would start there instead of the responsibility. Um, at least at first. Now, internally, I think there, is, there are claims that can be made by folks in the city who are being left behind, and those claims are important ones, and we can talk about that some more. Great. So let's open it up. Um, uh, yeah. Thank you. So I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about the uh, super preemption um, yeah. legislation. And in particular, if you think there is like an independent legal response that cities can have to super preemption legislation, yeah. uh, independent from regular preemption. So in, in Tallahassee, uh, the mayor just uh, litigated a case against the state, which said that uh, not only can you not pass your own gun control legislation, but if you either pass your own gun control legislation or keep it on the books, we will create a cause of action where we can remove you, yeah, mayor, from yeah, office. Yeah. And the mayor uh, brought, a, brought a, a whole slew of constitutional yeah, claims yeah, saying, yeah, yeah. like, this kind of 
preemption is wrong, and the court didn't like decide on that issue. Yeah, yeah, but I'm yeah. curious if you think that there is actually a legal basis for targeting super preemption independent of. So I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. So I'm just starting to right. These are very new. These things, and they're they're, they're they are being litigated. I'm, this is the research I'm doing now is right on this, which is. Wow, look at these. And now we're going to see the conditional spending ones. I think Texas passed the conditional spending. But these are not just preemption, but punitive preemption, which is if you try to do this, we will remove you. We will arrest you. Like, this is pretty intense stuff. So um, there are no, as far as I know, federal constitutional restrictions on that kind of thing, at least under the current uh, uh, conventional doctrine which treats, uh, as a constitutional matter, localities as agencies of the state. That's the Hunter versus Pittsburgh doctrine. Uh, there might, maybe there's a due process or a voting rights claim that can be brought. There were claims that were tried to be brought in Michigan for Detroit when there, was, when there were receivers appointed. And the courts rejected those um, because, again, there was a valid receivership statute. And, Anti-democratic takeover is perfectly fine. So the removal doesn't look so crazy. There might be state claims that one can make under a state home rule statute or something like that. I just haven't looked at them, and I don't know what the Florida ones look like. It's quite interesting. This is happening right now. Is it correct to assume that because the blue states uh, contribute money to the federal government, whereas the red states only receive and not contribute, is there some power that can be exerted as a result of this? No. <laughs> yes. No. Yeah. I mean, political power, right? Um, we just don't have a uh, structure. We have a structure which, with two senators per state, uh, um, those those states are overrepresented, and with the with the movement of economic activity much more uh, unevenly distributed and more concentrated, this is going to continue to be a, uh, a mismatch. And so you're talking about political power, not you, you don't have constitutional or or other kinds of legal claims, um, but you do have you you have an assertion of. Uh, of equality or fairness, um, but the political the, the the political balance is not in the favor of those uh, places, those blue metropolitan areas, in part because voters are packed into those. So we have a we have a a, a problem there. Hi, you mentioned that. One of the big issues in, in the case in the case of like Flint and Detroit and maybe and going back forty years, maybe even the New York City fiscal crisis yeah, in yeah. 1973, that the states jumped in, but they jumped in too late, and it was a case of taking away power yeah. from the local city government. Uh, my question would be, when do you think the state should have intervened in cases like Flint, Detroit, and New York, if not at the end when the cities were teetering on the brink of bankruptcy? Yeah, they should they should have drawn the municipal lines differently right away <laughs> right so the state what we pretend is like oh here's this place called Detroit and um, and uh, it's failing why is it failing I don't know it's corrupt or the industry has left or something like that and yet there are rich suburbs all the way around it 
And those people have plenty of tax base, they have plenty of economic wherewithal, and they have really good schools. And so a number, a series of things have happened. One is uh, white flight and Supreme Court decisions that allowed for white flight, which said you, you can't integrate across local lines. But those local lines had no meaning. They're state-created. And then no tax base sharing, right? No revenue sharing between the city and the suburbs, right? That's a problem, too, right from the get-go. Uh, uh, as long as Detroit is roaring, that's fine. But as soon as there's white flight and, and, and um, industry fleeing, uh, your tax base is declining with a city that's shrinking. Um, so this is a this is the Detroit's demise is 50 years in the making. Its peak is 1954, and then it's and there's lots of efforts to try to fix the problem of the inner city in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Urban renewal is one of these things, right, which doesn't work at all and is actually quite destructive. But these are much of this this taxing authority, the rev, lack of revenue sharing, the, distri the distribution of education services, those are all state-level policies which have detrimental effects on declining post-industrial cities. They don't have to be that way. Now, once they're that way, when do you intervene? Well, maybe you do some revenue sharing earlier or you come to aid earlier. Um, certainly not when, it's, when you're at the brink of collapse, seems to me. That's just... Yeah, Marshall at the back. Is there any prospect of a dynamic of statewide elective office being point of leverage against uh, state legislatures? Mm. Um, I know in North Carolina, Yeah. Uh, so I'm just thinking as population shifts, as cities grow in significance, whether you get a governor-city alliance against uh, a rural-dominated yeah, yeah. So legislature. I think that's right. In Virginia, we're experiencing that. So we have a red legislature, but all our statewide elective officers are democratically held. And so when Virginia cities want to engage in sanctuary cities, say, policies, um, the red legislature is ready to, to swat that down, but we have a governor who could veto it. So that's what you're looking at. And, and that's a possible, that's a model, right? We could, that would have been the national model, too, if we didn't have the electoral college, right? Which is that, because Hillary Clinton won two or three million more votes won the popular vote. So in states, we don't have electoral colleges, so it can work that way. You can elect a governor um, and get a lot more votes uh, if you get the city folks out, uh, and even when the legislature is, is uh, still quite red. Well, so that's another possibility, the statewide ballot initiatives, and people are thinking about that as a response to the preemption legislation. And there are, there are some folks, and then you'd put into the ballot initiatives both a substantive component, let's say you want to do environmental law or fracking or something like that, and a no preemption. And maybe we'll see that. I don't know. It's hard to get that ginned up. It's hard to get people excited about preemption. City power, like, I don't know. What, I don't know. What are you talking about? Like, you need some language that will get people out and be like, I can't believe they're now you know, threatening Tallahassee with removing our people, and you've got to get other cities to agree this is really scary, and we need a net about, in the states that have it, a ballot initiative to, to pursue that. That's a nice point. Uh, Gerald? Okay. And I'll go over this side. 
Thanks. Hi. Um, I was very interested in your suggestion, or first of all, your comment that you hate states, <laughs> and I'm taking it also you were implying you would abolish states if you if I you could. I think I said it, not just implied. Uh, well, all right. So, <laughs> uh, so, the, so then I won't take it with a grain of salt. This is being recorded. Um, so, but it strikes me that now then we are left with cities as they are. Yeah. And you were just talking about Detroit being a city as it is jurisdictionally yeah. rather than metropolitan Detroit, yeah, which doesn't yeah, yeah. exist jurisdictionally. Yeah. Plus, there are what we call cities, but they're in the suburbs that are actually exclusionary and problematic. Yeah. Yeah. So if you could indeed yeah. abolish states, yeah. what would that mean in terms of how you would like to see cities arrayed? Oh, my goodness. How's it going to play out? That's <laughs> so. In some ways, it's a, so. I'll say it this way: the the and this is the way the book deals with sort of the regional tier of government. So, uh, the theoretical claim is that federalism is good for localism, in the in the that by having a third to, uh, having states national, it's good for localities, and I'm resisting that literature which says, oh, yeah, federalism, that the cities can have more activity in the state. And I think we've just seen that that's just wrong, at least recently, very much so. Um, uh, federalism, as practiced in the U.S., is not good for cities generally, uh, if you're thinking in, in just in those kind of raw terms. The other problem with states is, is, is not states qua states as a kind of a unit. It's the way we've, we've counted uh, the, the malapportionment of states. There's no, the, the reason we have a problem is the electoral college and the two senators for rural states. So uh, Wyoming has as many senators as California. That's crazy if you think about it in terms of, uh, in terms of actual representation. So you could have a federal system and there are European systems that are differently structured and that regional tier would be uh, would 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 maybe be facilitative of of uh, interlocal, right? If we're talking about exclusion, maybe they serve as a check. Uh, maybe they do some work um, in um, in aiding cities instead of hurting them. But I haven't seen a lot of states capable of doing this. New Jersey, for a while, where I'm from originally had a Supreme Court that was trying to do this, but very much resistant by the state legislature. And that was kind of a progressive place. If you look at New York State, Governor Cuomo, same party as de Blasio, but not willing to let New York City do anything, right? Plastic bag ban, why, why do you care, New York legislature? But they do for, there's some obvious political reasons. So even in states where they're aligned, there's Democrats in both, say California or New York, they often impose on the city and in ways. Now, what would it look like? I don't know. I mean, it's so, it's such a different world. Uh, maybe you'd have metropolitan area kinds of regional governments, which made more sense. And they would cross, because a lot of those cross state lines anyway. And so the states are, are, the states are in some ways more artificial than cities, although these cities' lines are artificial too. Yeah. Uh, up here at the front, where's the mic? So I want to focus on your use of the word city. Uh, and when you use the word city, it sounds like Boston or Detroit or yeah. New York, and it doesn't sound like Cambridge or Worcester yeah. 
yeah. or Newton or Brookline. There's 101 cities and towns in this area. Yeah. And if you begin to add all the cities and towns together, there's a majority of the state. Uh, and that's not just true. So, so the idea that there's such a thing as a city and then everything else is something else, you sometimes use metropolitan area, yeah. leaves out the idea that if the problem is the state, the answer is local city, have the cities understand each other. Lennox is, has yeah, problems yeah, yeah. doing stuff for its people too, right? Right. So we need to talk about the, the word city can't be just Boston. Or city to city coordination city and, and, city. and these tensions I mean, built it's into. It's a political effort. That actually, you know, Lennox can't do much for its people either. Yeah, yeah, that's right. right that seems right. Um, Jerry, Jerry, you're bringing me back 20 years to when I was in your local government law class <laughs> at the law school. Well, I'm, I'm stressed out right now. That's what I'm just telling you because I've been put on the spot. Uh, uh, it's not a bad thing. It's a terrific thing. Um, but it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. The definition of a city is, right, the state, well, you've got this thing and it's constitutional. Definition of a city is impossible, and I punt in the book in lots of ways. Um, but I think you're right about um, it doesn't have to be the big city in the, in the, in the state, the biggest, metro, the, the biggest central city, Boston. Um, I do imagine Lenox is one of the Charlottesville is one of these places. Wow. These are all um, now, um, uh, and then there's city suburb, right, which creates a different. That's a sociological kind of description, not a, not a, not a claim about the actual power of these places. And what we've worried about for a long time is the city suburb split and giving autonomy to suburbs to engage in exclusion or other processes that we don't like. Um, and so we've thought a lot about regionalism. I'm not convinced regionalism is the way to go for many reasons that you've stated in the past. Um, uh, and so I'm focused on cities in part because of because what we've seen politically and economically is this incredible bifurcation now politically uh, with the red and the blue. And so those are metropolitan areas in some ways, but they're also there's also a divide. It's not that all the suburbs around Dallas or Houston are, uh, are voting blue. Lots of them are voting red, too. So there's a kind of a political bifurcation between, again, a kind of cosmopolitanism and a kind of traditionalist uh, po po political economy. But the definition, I, you know, I, I would be satisfied with local power just increase local power. If it's used for ill, which it will be anyway, that's fine. But I, I actually suspect um, that kind of autonomy will be better on balance. But I agree with you. It's The definitions are, I'm a little fuzzy on the definitions. Carmen and then Arne. <coughs> yeah, I'm, I'm interested in um, what your analysis might tell us about the future of sustainable cities as kind of a movement, or at least a mm -hmm. Some of which is connected by networks that pass templates and climate plan, yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. isomorphism around. Some of which, or some of the stronger of which, exist in states such as San Francisco and California, yeah, Portland yeah. and Oregon, Seattle and Washington, which don't have that 
I mean, they have com tensions and conflicts with yeah, the yeah. state, but they're pretty comfortable in going at, whereas in other places it's not the case. Yeah, I think it's just really hard. I mean, this has been one of the movements. So environment, local environmentalism, local uh, wage and labor, local anti-discrimination. These are some of the big ones. And um, uh, and they've been, the cities have been in the forefront in lots of ways, uh, joining climate, international climate change uh, agreements and showing up at conferences and then coming back and bringing uh, lots of ideas for, for green cities. Uh, in red states, those are getting preempted. So Oklahoma recently, um, I think it was Oklahoma, but so think about anti-fracking bans in certain places. Oklahoma said, no, f no, you can't do that locality. And by the way, uh, uh, you have some rules that allow people with solar panels to hook up to the, to the energy company. The energy company will pay you back for the energy that you're saving them. We're going to reverse that. Now, if you hook up, you have to pay the energy company. Uh, which someone, when describing that to me, said, that looks really vindictive. It just doesn't look like preemption. That looks like super preemption. Um, so I, I just don't see a great deal of room to maneuver for lots of these places, again, unless they really come together. And you could have maybe, in the progressive era, there was a home rule movement, and then there was a later home rule movement in the 70s of a certain kind. You would have to generate a, a national home rule movement, or state by state, obviously where other cities that are maybe Republican-led uh, also fear these threats from the state, and they coalesce with other cities in the state and say, actually, we need more home rule than you're giving us. And maybe you could do that. Um, you need some model legislation that would be applied. And I think people are thinking about that a lot now because they're seeing all those efforts at the local level get squashed very quickly. Arn here at the back. Thank you for your presentation. Um, I feel personally sympathetic to a number of the issues that you've been raising, the policy positions, um, but I want to ask a question that derives from your statement about on balance we'd be better with significantly more autonomy for cities, uh, because I'm old enough to remember when cities like uh, Birmingham and Little Rock and Boston were responsible for some horrible abuses of segregation. Yeah. Uh, the city of Chicago has recently been cited for a variety of problems, uh, problems in quotes with its police department. Yeah. Um, many small cities uh, do things like uh, they have done in the past, uh, fired teachers because of alleged communist ties. They've censored books in uh, uh, school libraries or public libraries. And I think that it's a mistake to think that cities are automatically progressive, even if many of them are in this era. Right. Um, some of them, over time, have been dominated by big business interests that are hardly interested in what uh, the poor do. Yeah. And so the question that I want to ask is, where do you create limits uh, on city power? Um, you've argued that the pendulum is much too far in the direction of state power, um, but presumably you wouldn't make them autonomous in part because would you want to have, say, the state of Massachusetts be a patchwork of different laws so that when you crossed a municipal boundary, 
which wouldn't have a line to de uh, designate it, yeah. uh, that different laws might be uh, in place. Think of the areas where there are speed traps for people who drive through right. where local uh, yeah, yeah. areas are exercising their autonomy to extort money uh, from people who uh, might be uh, allegedly speeding. Yeah, so, I, you know, these are, this is the classic kind of dilemma of decentralization. And you could name Ferguson and Black Lives Matter as a, you know, as an abuse of, of local power for sure. And so I have struggled with this my whole career writing about cities, which is uh, what, what amount of decentralization, what's the appropriate, how do you create limits? And I've just, uh, uh, in thinking about, for example, civil rights is the, is the paradigm example of central authority coming in to protect a vulnerable minority in smaller places. And that's a complicated story. Uh, it's, it's, it is a success of centralization in that, in, in that respect. But Charlottesville is a good example. Charlottesville wanted to keep its schools open, and the state of Virginia wanted to close those schools and did. So there was a kind of a complicated, that doesn't mean Birmingham is, is, was a good place, uh, but Alabama wasn't any be better. Um, uh, so I think there's a, comp there, there's a slightly more complicated story on the civil rights, but no question, there are certain baseline rights and obligations that should be ensured by constitutional law that should be committed across the nation. They're, they're, those are important things and they're not uh, to be negotiated. Um, what those are is a negotiation and is a political event. Um, I think we cycle through centralization and decentralization movements. So as a progressive era, you wanted decentralization because there was the Supreme Court was doing too many things to undermine your state and local legislation. We're in another era where there's a push for decentralization for political reasons, for substantive political reasons. I think that's okay. I don't think you need a neutral, and I think it's, almost, it's impossible conceptually, a neutral uh, autonomy-based uh, division of authority that's not infused with politics. I just don't think we've had it. We've never had it. Our federalism jurisprudence doesn't look like that, and I don't think our localism jurisprudence looks like that. Now, when you try to write a home rule <laughs> constitutional provision, it becomes really hard because courts are going to interpret that, and you need transubstantive language. So if you want uh, localities to do more environmental protection but not less, you've got to figure out ways to write that because you have to operationalize these things and that's really hard. We've tried to do this with federalism jurisprudence and that's been tricky with state, the state and national. Um, but um, again, I think we are, uh, as I'm a progressive, uh, I have certain pro progressive commitments, but I think progressive has, progressives have been much more hostile to decentralization than they should be. So again, this is just a matter of degree. It's not a matter of kind. Um, but I appreciate the objection. It's the objection I've, I've gotten all the years that I've made any of these claims. Um, and it's a serious one. There's a question here. Yeah. Coming back to uh, one of the questions that was um, just asked. <coughs> You know, there are a lot of cases in the U.S. of abuses of authority um, within cities, and yeah, you yeah, kind yeah. of articulated a reason 
you've kind of articulated the case for, you know, look, there's been a lot of power, you know, both legal and economic power, which has been taken away from cities. Yeah. I'm trying to get a bit more of a diagnosis as to kind of what's behind that. And, you know, I think there'd probably be value in understanding the history behind uh, some of that across the U.S., why there's been this large-scale trend to do that. To take power away. Yes. Um, so we've had a, the 20th century is a, is a is a century of centralization in in lots of ways. One is the uh, rise of the social welfare state. I think post New Deal, especially, is uh, the administrative state at the federal level becomes much larger and grows in response to w world wars, uh, in particular. Um, you also have national civil rights, women's rights. Uh, LGBT rights movements, right, which are seeking national solutions to rights offenses, which are serious, and those are national, and they're they're appropriately national and rights-based, and so all of that is is I think in my mind quite appropriate. We should have a national social welfare state. It's 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 fully plausible. There are lots of ways to in to to operationalize a, a national social welfare state with respecting local autonomy to some degree. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Fair housing was difficult to implement in all cities uh, because they gave local authorities, they, they, they acceded to local interests, and those local interests were segregationist. So that's Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, all these places you had to, even though that was federal money coming in. So there are some areas where local local is is not what we might prefer and might be contrary to, to national. Um, um, and again, I think there's a political calculus what it's making. I think we're in a again in an era where a progressive decentralist movement is 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 now needed and fair game. That doesn't mean you're always going to be a decentralist across all all issues. But um, I think in our current, uh, with our current political economy, that's that's what I'm advocating. I just don't, uh, I don't see the states as doing it, and I don't, I certainly don't see the federal government as doing it. Yeah. Um, a question about uh, inserting the city interests into the more the upper levels of government a if by city interests you meant interests that are universally held by cities by virtue of being cities or you meant the more progressive tendencies of cities and b if they were to effectively impact more federal and state level uh, policy what organization you see as being most effective oh man hard question um, so I, I, I think right now you've got cities who are trying to do stuff that some of it's progressive, some of it's not. Um, um, I think most, uh, I think, um, there are interests of cities qua cities. And again, we'd have to, we have this definitional problem which is what do we mean by that? So, so many big city mayors are pro-immigration because they think that's good for their cities. But that doesn't mean smaller cities are, and some are not. Some have been very hostile to immigration um, uh, and have adopted laws that are 
that are hostile to, to, to immigrants. Um, uh, so what I think you could get together is a coalition that said, you know what, we might disagree on a particular policy, but we don't like these super preemption things where you threaten us with withholding money because the next guy can come after me. Uh, and we don't like this, you can remove our officers. And maybe we just let a thousand flowers bloom and if you can get a kind of a coalition to do that, yeah, of local officials. And then what's the organization that does this? It doesn't exist right now as far as I can tell. It just but, doesn't exist. How would you build in then this notion of minimal standards, that basic, whatever we've, through a negotiation process, we've declared yeah. basic rights will not be contravened. So how do you build in both? So I think it's built in. Constitutional rights exist. Uh -huh. I think those are contested, obviously, but they exist. I'm not saying you can go, I'm not saying depart from those, yeah. that floor of constitutional rights. You, you may have interest, right? You may think, oh, this locality is going to go below environmental standards, and this one's going to go above. We often think that localities are going to go below. So we often think there's a race to the bottom. I reject that. I think we've seen in the minimum wage fight, for example, that there's a race to the top, whatever you mean by top and bottom, but if you think more wages. That is, there is this sense that there's going to be a race to the bottom. We've got to stop those localities from racing to the bottom. I don't think that's the case. I think actually you'll often get races to the top. Um, uh, how do you set the floor? There, are f You could set it substantively, uh, but that turns on your, 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 uh, your substantive policy preferences. I just don't think there's a way to be neutral about those. Like either now, politically, what I say in the book and what I believe is that actually a progressive decentralization, decentralist urban political movement is a possibility because of the nature of cities and what's happening economically. Cities are more diverse, they're more highly educated. They're, they created, they were a, a, a core component of the Obama coalition. They had been the core component of the New Deal coalition. So in terms of my own preferences, I think cities are going are gonna to have to lead the way. That's where those people are. Uh, uh, if you have different political preferences, you're going to have a different take on that. Last question, Muriel, and then. I would like to know if you could you speak to the, the power of cities regarding public opinion and yeah. um, their power to coalesce, to build coalitions and initiate a trend in public opinion that has not much to do with their legal powers, but more their trending, their image, their PR campaigns. You know, so San Francisco recently launched this image that is a sanctuary city. It's not going to do yeah, that. Yeah, and yeah. It's going to do this and that. And probably that works with soft policies where legal powers are not so much at stake, but where they can do a lot by showing good practices. And climate action is a good example of yeah. that. But I, I was wondering if you had other example in mind. Thank you. Uh, so I think cities can take high-profile positions. I think um, one I talk about the book is um, same-sex marriage, which maybe we've forgotten about because that's been nationalized. But it starts as a city-based, well, state-based in some ways, state Supreme Courts. But then cities, um, San Francisco is a good example. Um, and the mayor at that time, Gavin Newsom, says, well, we're, you know, we're not going to. And then I wrote an article talking about local recognition of same-sex marriages. And people freaked out because they thought, oh, dis talk about disuniformity. 
every city has a different marriage law, that would be terrible. And then I thought, well, actually not that many of these places are going to have different marriage laws. And what's the difference between 50 different marriage laws? And, and So there are ways to do this. Sanctuary cities has become one of those nodes. And it, again, it's a, um, cities have a lot of discretion. They run the police to some, some extent. I mean, uh, um, um, there, there are limits because sometimes cities don't have authority over their police departments or their uh, transportation or the a whole range of things that they don't have authority over. But where they do, they can make policy for those things. And there's a, a realm of kind of discretionary policy that is, uh, uh, if you don't invite legal challenge, you can start doing some of these things um, as long as you don't attract the attention of a hostile state legislature who, who will come and, and preempt you. Um, so there's some, there's a lot of room to maneuver at the, at the, at the implementation level. Um, uh, and then you need some translocal networks. You need to work across across cities, but across, like the minimum wage is across labor, the labor movement. And community benefit agreements, which I talk about in the book a little bit, are these these one-on-one -on -one deals in cities. Those are across labor, labor and anti-poverty movements operating at a local scale. Um, but even independent of those networks, I think there's just a place for, for city power, right, as a, as, as a rallying cry, period, uh, independent of those issues. Again, do people get excited about city? They should, they should be offended. Here's the thing. We should be offended by anti-democratic takeovers of cities, even if they're in terrible shape. That's just, it just strikes me as, as an inappropriate uh, um, approach to what a city is. It's not just the Department of Transportation and you take it over. It's uh, a city with constituencies and a polity. And we should be offended by um, preemption laws as if the state legislature is the, the appropriate democratic entity. It's not. Bill de Blasio represents four million people, six million people. They elected him. Uh, he. He and the city council should be able to adopt a plastic bag ban or congestion pricing or other things like, or a millionaire tax, frankly. I know there are spillover effects and so on, but we just sort of go along. We're like, well, the state, they're, that's, that's a, a, the wrong attitude. We need to think of cities as polities that are powerful and that represent us. And this goes for local, you know, all local governments and, and, and not just in narrow areas. Great. Well, that's my plea. Um, I've, I've been like on a roller co emotional roller coaster while you're talking. While you've been talking about, but it's uh, me the, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's been refreshing that it's a positive take on cities, but a critical and hard-nosed positive take on cities. And what's more, I think, sort of surfacing some ideas on the types of politics and activism required to realize the progressive potential of cities, given. Their, their weaknesses. Their, their so reality. thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the question. Appreciate it. Thanks, man.